Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The UK encountered the first bumps in its vaccine program as supplies dwindled, but Health Secretary Matt Hancock insisted everything was still on track. Of course, the, you know, the future forecasts are always uh, lumpy and sometimes they go up and sometimes they go down. But we've made these public commitments and I'm absolutely, uh, I'm absolutely delighted with the team uh, because we're on track to meet them. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times with me, Sebastian Payne. This week, we'll be looking at why the UK has seen a sudden drop in its vaccine supply. What is going to happen in April? Is this down to a dispute with the EU, India or both? And how big an issue is it for the plans for easing lockdown? Health editor Sarah Neville and science editor Clive Cookson will explain all. And later, we'll be discussing whether policing in Britain has become too heavy-handed following the event at Clapham Common last weekend. Is the new crime bill too draconian and is enough being done to protect women? I'll be joined by our chief political commentator Robert Shrimsley and political correspondent Jasmine cameron Schlesi to explain. But first, Sarah and Clive, welcome back to the pod. Thanks, Seb. Yes, it's good to be here. So I think we've actually got some pretty good news to celebrate since we last spoke to you on the vaccine front. While the UK is having some issues delivering the jabs, I don't think either of you two have. Sarah, you've been vaccinated. Which one did you get and how did it go? I got the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. I went to a a centre in central London, a nice young third year medical student inoculated me. And I felt kind of tired and fluey for a couple of days, but really nothing bad at all. And I do genuinely feel a, a sense of relief. It feels as if we're sort of approaching not exactly the end of this, but at least perhaps the beginning of the end of this crisis. Everyone I've spoken to certainly talks to that sense of relief, although I think it's going to be still a while yet before I get the jab. Clive, what about you? Well, I had the Pfizer jab and unlike Sarah, I had no reaction at all, not even a sore arm, which I'm afraid I think is a bad sign because the more you react within reason, I think the more your immune system is responding. So I'm hoping it's worked. You know, I'll find out in May or whenever I get my second dose. But no, of course, I feel a great sense of relief that number one is in. Excellent. Well, let's move on to the main topic of the week. When Boris Johnson talks about the UK's world-beating response to COVID-19, only the vaccine programme passes muster. It's been an unqualified success and one of the reasons his Conservative Party are so far ahead in the polls. Over 25 million Brits have received their jab so far. But the government unexpectedly announced a sharp fall in the number of vaccines delivered in April due to supply issues. And the debate has a geopolitical angle too, given that Europe is struggling with its own vaccine rollout. Ursula von der Leyen, the European Commission president, warned the bloc might even consider export controls. All options are on the table. We are in the crisis of the century. 
And I'm not ruling out any, anything for now because we have to make sure that Europeans are vaccinated as soon as possible. So Sarah, let's begin with the overall state of the UK's vaccine programme. Based on what was set out in December, it's pretty much all going to plan. Very high levels of take-up, over 94%, I believe. And the government is insisting that all over 50s will have had their first jab by the middle of April. So what's the problem? Well, a week ago, we would have said this was indeed the most uh, astonishingly unalloyed success. And a sign of the sort of buoyant mood around it was that there was some very clear briefing to a couple of the Saturday newspapers suggesting that we were actually going to move to the over 40s much sooner than expected. So it was a bit of a jolt to find out on Wednesday that in fact NHS people involved in the programme had been told that they must halt booking any new appointments throughout April because there'd been a sudden but very significant reduction in the supplies available. So that really has put the first serious dent in the narrative, which right from December the 8th, I think it was the day that uh, William Shakespeare became one of the first two vaccinees, but now suddenly the government is in the unaccustomed position of having to explain what's happening and explain why some of the public expectations that they'd raised so high may not be met to be to the government. They're still absolutely insisting they're on track with the two big dates that they've set for this programme, that all over 50s should be vaccinated by the middle of April, and all adult Britons who want a jab will have had it by the end of July. But there's no question that it's been a difficult political management problem for them this week, and very much not the position that they'd hoped to be in. So Clive, let's have a look at why this might be happening. And Sarah and I spent a lot of this week speaking to people in Whitehall trying to figure out exactly what was going on behind the scenes. But Matt Hancock gave us a bit of clarity in the House of Commons and the government is pinning it all on production issues. The first one is this batch of 1.7 million jabs that have been sent back for testing. And the second thing is this supply from the Serum Institute in India, which again, the government has put down to supply issues, but others are saying that actually it's been blocked by Modi's government from shipping it out to the UK. Exactly. It is pretty opaque what's happening. There are two elements here that can hold up supplies. One is the genuinely technical difficulties in producing a complex biological process. I mean, it's not straightforward. This is a new vaccine. And a lot of the manufacturing sites haven't made this sort of mRNA vaccine before at scale. In fact, you could say none of them have because this is the first one. That's the Pfizer one. The AstraZeneca adenovirus vaccine is also a novelty, a complicated process. So there are technical supply issues. And then there are the political ones you alluded to. And I don't know whether the Serum Institute of India supply has been blocked for political reasons, because India was having rather a good downturn in COVID cases, but that's turning up again, unfortunately. And there are feelings that the Indian government wanted to have it at home. So Sarah, I think if we look at the context of this, a lot of it is actually not that much of a serious problem that we were crunching the numbers this week. And 
April is a significant moment in the vaccine programme for the UK because, yes, they will have vaccinated all over 50s, which, according to people like Chris Whitty, the chief medical officer of England, reduces 99% of deaths and massively reduces the pressure on the NHS. But in April, you have to then start doing the second jabs. And really, the programme began to scale up towards the end of January. And this 11-week window the NHS has set between the first and second doses, that really kicks in in April. And Matt Hancock said this week that really they're still going to be delivering about 14 million jabs throughout April, which is lower than it's been in March. But it's still a pretty high number. So it's probably good to keep it in context. It feels as if really what's gone wrong here is expectations that that rogue briefing about over 40s. And it really feels like the lid has come off the boosterism Boris Johnson has tried to restrain for much of 2021. Yes, and I think some NHS officials were less than delighted about that huge raising of expectations last weekend. In a way, I think this was always going to be a difficult point for the programme. It was absolutely predictable that at the point at which second doses needed to scale up, there was going to be a dip in first doses. So it's perhaps unfortunate that there wasn't more sort of public preparation you know, you're absolutely right. By international standards, even in April, we're still going to be doing more vaccinations than many of our counterparts. So it's particularly unfortunate that there wasn't better preparation, because I think in the minds of a lot of Britons, there will now be a sense, oh, this programme isn't doing well, it's stumbled. You know, it didn't have to be this way, that it could have been very differently presented. And after all, as I said, the government is still on track to meet those two deadlines that it set. Now, Clive, we need to put this in the context of Europe as well. And we heard from Ursula von der Leyen at the top there. And Europe is still really struggling with its vaccine rollout. But the th- most baffling thing to see this week is the story about the AstraZeneca jab and how effective or side effects it may have and this concern over blood clots. We just heard from the EMA, from the MHRA in the UK, from the World Health Organization, all saying there are no concerns about blood clots and the AstraZeneca vaccine, yet that didn't stop lots of European countries from halting giving out the doses. It's a very complicated picture on side effects. At least the spotlight's turned away from efficacy before countries in continental Europe were worrying that the AstraZeneca vaccine wouldn't work well enough, particularly on older people. I think the efficacy questions have more or less been answered. Now the spotlight is on whether there are adverse side effects. And a few of those have been discovered. There are at least two different sorts of blood disorders to do with abnormal clotting and thrombosis that have been detected in people who'd just been vaccinated in Norway, in Germany, elsewhere on continental Europe. The numbers are tiny, I would say fewer than 20 around the continent. Investigation is still continuing. There's no proven link with the vaccine, but a lot of vaccinologists think that there might be a link. But that is no reason to stop the vaccination program when it's saving tens of thousands of lives probably. And people have said that just by halting for a few days the AstraZeneca vaccination in continental Europe this week until the European Medicines Agency said it was okay, that will have cost lives. 
it'll have cost lives directly because people weren't getting vaccinated. And it'll also probably, unfortunately, have cost lives indirectly because all the publicity about bad side effects will just have undermined confidence in the vaccine. And as we know, vaccine hesitancy has been greater in most continental European countries than in the UK. So it's a difficult balance. And that's really something for health authorities and politicians to put across, I think. And Sarah, this is the weird thing for you, isn't it? At the same time, they've got these concerns about AstraZeneca, but they've also got concerns that they haven't got enough of the jab. And this idea of export controls, because there's been a sort of theory, I guess, doing the rounds in Whitehall this week, is not confirmed by any means that the link between the supply issues in the UK are somehow to do with the EU's struggles of getting its own supplies of the vaccines as well. Because, of course, if they brought in export controls, the biggest issue for the UK would be with the Pfizer vaccine. Because as we said earlier, we've got to get those second jabs in. There are still batteries of the Pfizer vaccine from its plant in Belgium to come to the UK. You can see why people are drawing the link, even if it's officially denied. Yes, I suppose there's a sort of power asymmetry there, isn't there? Because all of the Pfizer vaccine that we need so badly, particularly for those who got Pfizer early in the rollout, that's all coming from Europe. And of course, the other side of the equation is that the UK struck a deal very early on with AstraZeneca, and that contract is being primarily fulfilled from UK manufacturing plants. Now, the UK manufacturing plants thus far have proved significantly more productive than their European counterparts. So it's a difficult situation where AstraZeneca has had to acknowledge that it can't give Europe anything like the level of doses that it had anticipated in these first few months of the programme. So as you rightly say, Seb, it's perhaps inevitable that a link is being made, particularly given the abrupt news that supplies had fallen so significantly just in a few days by the government's account. And I suppose it all underlines the scope for vaccination to become the latest front of geopolitics, you know, with sort of huge international tensions. I don't think it's even just the vaccine supplies themselves, but some of the consumables that are required to produce and deliver the vaccines, where I think there's a bit of soul-searching going on in Europe about the need to become much more self-sufficient in some of those supplies for fear that that's going to be another hugely intense global competition to get hold of these supplies. And finally, Clive, how is the vaccine programme going overall with regards to easing lockdown? The government is still insisting that things will go ahead on plan on April the 12th and May the 17th and June the 21st, by which point society should be entirely back to normal. And the early data does seem to suggest the link between getting COVID and serious illness and hospitalisation has been broken, which should really help relieve pressure on the NHS and get things back to normal. It's great news, Seb. We don't yet know the full effect of reopening schools at the beginning of last week because it'll take a while to see whether, as all the epidemiologists have said, and as Chris Whitty, the chief medical officer, warned, that will push up the R number, increase transmission. It could push it up by anything between 10 and 50%. And cases recorded 
are still falling, but the fall has slowed down. What's still falling very quickly are the lagging indicators of hospitalization and people who are severely ill, and even more so in deaths. So I think we'll certainly meet the April deadline. I hope we'll meet the May deadline, because as well as schools going back and then the other loosening measures, I think there's a whole feeling out there with spring in the air, people just feeling more relaxed about the informal social contacts, the distancing that they may have been practicing above and beyond the government's lockdown restrictions. So we're probably okay, but the figures for continental Europe are a warning. For example, France reimposing quite strict lockdown restrictions in Paris and 15 other regions. So we certainly can't be complacent, but let's be in a good mood for now. I'm happy to take that vote, Sarah and Clive. Thank you very much. Thanks, Seb. Thank you, Seb. Last weekend, a vigil in Clapham Common took a harsh turn. Thousands of Londoners, including the Duchess of Cambridge, went to pay their respects to Sarah Everard, a 33-year-old who was abducted and killed on her walk home. The police moved in to arrest those attending amid accusations the vigil turned into a protest. The Everard case and the police response to her vigil has prompted a lot of soul-searching and a nationwide debate on whether policing is proportionate and whether the forces are doing enough to protect women. Speaking in the House of Commons, Home Secretary Priti Patel said the government was taking firm action to address the situation. Too many of us have pretended to be on the phone to a friend to scare someone off. Too many of us have clutched our keys in our fists in case we need to defend ourselves. And that is not okay. Women and girls must feel safe whilst walking our streets. That is why we have continued to take action. Robert Shrimsley, welcome back. Let's begin with what happened at that vigil last weekend, since the scenes are still reverberating around politics in the country since then. It's quite difficult to unpick what happened, but it looks as if what was a socially distanced vigil that may not have been authorised took a slightly different turn later on in the evening and saw the police moving in and arresting many women who were there. Obviously, this is not a protest or a vigil that would, under normal circumstances, have attracted any problems in terms of being broken up by the police. It's because of the pandemic legislation which prohibits such mass gatherings and the police acting on that. But what's striking is that the Metropolitan Police, in spite of appeals to them, failed to find a way to accommodate the strength of feeling and allow a vigil and even a bit of a protest to take place in the way that other cities did. They were very hardline. They refused to negotiate and agree to terms which would have allowed this to be policed in a way that was both sensitive and to some extent compliant with the pandemic legislation. So what happened is you have several hours of quite peaceful vigil, very dignified, quite upsetting scenes, actually. And then at the end, it does become a bit more like a protest. People are grouped closer together around a central bandstand to hear some campaigners speaking. And that's when the police move in. And it was absolutely awful. It was a terrible look. And Many people in the country, including the fact that the majority who still support the idea of the pandemic crackdown and the ban on demos, were not happy with what they saw. And they felt this was terribly heavy-handed policing of an event that was a simple cry for help from a lot of women to be heard in an area where they just feel their voices haven't been listened to. So whatever the rights and wrongs of whether you think the police were simply doing the job that was given to them by Parliament, 
it looked absolutely terrible and it showed staggering insensitivity and completely missed the mood of the moment. But Jasmine Kamenslesi, great to have you back on. And this whole thing was complicated by the fact of coronavirus as well, when mass public gatherings are banned and the organisers of that vigil, Reclaim the Streets, tried to work with the Met to do something that would have been COVID compliant. They couldn't have come to an agreement. And so the police were saying they were simply enforcing the law. But as Robert said, the optics of it were really, really bad. Yes, I agree with what Robert was saying about the fact that they completely misjudged the mood. Obviously, this case has struck a nerve for several reasons. The fact that Sarah Everard's alleged murderer was a police officer, the fact that she was you know, just walking home, the fact that she had taken all the quote-unquote precautions that women take to keep themselves safe, has really highlighted the fact that despite all the progress we've made in terms of gender equality and you know, the awareness raised by the Me Too movement, we still have a long way to go towards tackling harassment. And the actions of the police have really opened up questions about the powers that the police have during a pandemic. And, you know, police officers have been given these laws, but there seems to be no consistency in how they're applying them. So we saw earlier in the year that you had those two women who were fined for meeting up for a walk. That might have been a circumstance where other forces might have turned a blind eye. So I think definitely as we go through the vaccination process and as we're unlocking, there are going to be more and more questions about whether or not the current laws we have in terms of restricting gatherings and restricting protests, whether or not they're actually appropriate. And then, Robert, the political implications of this have reverberated. Boris Johnson came out and said that he was deeply distressed by images from Clapham Common. There's a report being done by the official inspector into the police here. And there was a lot of pressure on Cresta Dick, who's the commissioner of the Met Police, to resign. But it seems as if she's had the support of the Home Secretary and of the Prime Minister is not going anywhere. Do you think that's right? I think it feels that way to me, unless some new information emerges, which we don't currently have. I think it's also clear that Cresta Dick covered her back a little bit and was in communications with senior figures in the government, including the Home Secretary, who were aware of what she was doing. I think people also understand that the police have been put in a difficult position with the pandemic legislation and that there is almost no win for them. Whatever they do is going to be wrong to some extent. But I think the other point about this, however, is it has raised a related issue of the extent of powers that government has taken during this pandemic that have handed to the police. And this ties up with the other issue. That the government is trying currently to push through other measures which restrict protests and the rights of particularly disruptive protesters, issues nothing to do with the pandemic. And I think what it's brought home to a lot of people is you really do need to watch the extent you give governments the power to stop protests. People understand we're in a pandemic now. Most of the public gets this point. But when this pandemic comes to an end, we're going to have quite a fierce row about how much control the government is prepared to give back to people. This all feeds into the policing bill which came into Parliament this week, which handed even more powers over to cops and has had quite a backlash from many quarters, including from the Labour Party. This is what the Shadow Home Secretary Nick Thomas-Simmons had to say. The scenes from Clapham should be a red warning light to the government that ministers should not be rushing through laws, cracking down on protest. The truth is, Mr Speaker, this government is failing to address violence against women and girls, and ministers even want to curtail their right to protest about it. Jasmine, is that a fair characterisation of the policing bill? Because this is something that the choice is actually going to provide better help for women, as Priti Patel said at the beginning there. But Labour have framed this, the fact that you can get a harsher sentence for defacing a statue than you can for attacking a woman. 
So I think Labour's framing of the bill has been quite fair. My understanding is that the bill was actually put together in response to things like the Extinction Rebellion protests. But the timing of the debate has seen the Conservatives try to spin the legislation as something that was also beneficial for women. And so we've seen Boris Johnson and Preeti Patel argue that it would also mean that serious offenders and those who commit sexual offences would face longer sentences. You don't have polling on it yet, but I don't think the public have been convinced by that, judging by what we saw throughout the week with lots of marches and protests outside Westminster. Yes, motivated in part by the Sarah Everard case and the actions of the police over the weekend, but also in response to the perceived overreach that the policing bill represents. And it's quite interesting to me that had it not been for the tragic death of Sarah Everard, this bill would have really slipped past the attention of the public. Labour were planning to abstain against it, and then they decided to vote given the mood of the public and where the conversation was going. And I actually think people like David Lammy have given the most powerful criticisms of the bill and that they've argued there's no real mention of women. And they've highlighted the fact that this comes in the context of a decade of cuts and court closures and the justice system hasn't really done its job in terms of protecting victims of sexual offences. So I think the argument from Labour this week has been relatively strong. Robert, in your excellent column this week, you looked at this question and really the criminal justice angle, that's where the real focus needs to be. And there was a meeting of Boris Johnson's task force on this matter. It's promised more money for safer streets and CCTV and plainclothes police officers. But it seems that the criminal justice element is really going to be the biggest one that has to be tackled. Well, I mean, I think that's part of the issue that actually, of course, what we're seeking to get a safer society is both cultural shift, which means changing the attitudes of many men, but also cracking down more effectively. And the truth is, there are lots of laws, there are lots of offences which tackle all of the worst abuse of women. The issue is as much their enforcement. You know, the many times police don't take it seriously enough, the amount of time it takes for things to come to court. I mean, it's striking... You know, although I thought the attacks on the Conservatives this week were extremely politically clever, you know, it is also to be said that a domestic abuse bill is actually currently going through Parliament at the moment. And Priti Patel has got a consultation document out before this incident on new laws for violence against women and girls. So it's not that the government is completely ignoring this. It's just that I think the response has been very, very traditional and very, very unimaginative. And it always comes to him, let's have some stiffer sentences, let's have more CCTV. And there's nothing wrong with any of these proposals, but the truth is you actually have to catch people and punish them. And the system hasn't worked very well enough. And it also doesn't do enough to tackle what seems to me what you would call the lower end of the spectrum harassment. The stuff doesn't necessarily lead to violence, but leads to women feeling insecure in public and in the streets. Everything from, you know, really unpleasant catcalling to abuse as you walk down the street to being shouted at. And every woman has stories of these things and being made to feel unsafe when you're going about your daily life. And I think there is an argument now for a new crime of street harassment, which attempts to say, look, this is a public order issue. And we have to send a powerful signal to people in the street that says, we don't put up with this kind of behaviour. This is making half the population feel unsafe. Robert's right in saying that the conservative instinct on this issue has been to fall back on law and order and then to introduce more police and tougher sentences when really that's only part of the problem. And I think something that got lost in the noise of this week is that Labour put forward their survivor support plan. So that involved fast tracking rape and serious sexual assault cases through the courts, offering free and independent legal advice for victims, appointing a minister for survivors of rape and sexual violence. Now, I don't think these proposals won't necessarily solve the problem or eliminate the problem, but I thought it was interesting because there seemed to be quite 
a clear recognition from the party that the status quo of just introducing lots of police and throwing money at the problem isn't that effective. And I actually think Labour's response to the issues that have come up has actually been effective, not necessarily because of anything that Starmer said, but because of some of the women in the party who have been campaigning on this, on the issue of gender equality for years, have been incredibly vocal. So you have someone like Jess Phillips, who gave her moving speech in the House of Commons last week, where she read out the names of those women and girls who had been killed in the past year. And, you know, someone like Stella Creasy has been campaigning for misogyny to be classed as a hate crime for a long time. And it was announced earlier this week that from autumn, forces will be asked to record and identify victims of violence against women. But ultimately, no political party has really found a solution to tackle the casual sexism and proposals that address some of the underlying attitudes that underpin some of the behaviours that we've seen. The other thing that's important to remember in this, and another area where I think the government hasn't quite got this right yet, is that most women who are murdered are killed by somebody they know, most often a partner or a former partner, and that actually domestic abuse is a much more direct cause of violence against women, statistically speaking. And I think that comes to the point where the government's not quite got this right. So, for example, in the domestic abuse bill, which is currently in the House of Lords, it sent Tory peers out to vote down, unsuccessfully as it happens, to vote down an amendment which would have required people convicted of stalking or some form of domestic abuse to go onto a national register. Because one of the problems in the past has been that police forces don't keep track of people and take initial complaints seriously early enough in a way that might prevent worse violence. And I think the Conservatives voted against that. And the point is, it does show them falling back on their traditional instincts, which is stiffer penalties for rape, more CCTV, that kind of thing, and not looking at the broader picture. And finally, Jasmine, how do we tackle this wider cultural issue as well? Because a lot of the stuff we've talked about are policy prescriptions, which are very important. But I think what we've really seen following the Sarah Everard case and what happened in Clapham Common is this wider bit of soul searching about how we feel and how this problem that we know has existed for many years and decades has not really been tackled and that politicians have always shied away from that. But you obviously can't really legislate to change how lots of people feel about something and how they look at something. No, I think that's very true. And I think the issue of violence against women, as you said, has been one that's been going on for years and years and years now. And I think in order to confront the problem head on, it's important that we look critically at institutions, at leaders, and really be willing to question those institutions. Say, for example, this week has really prompted a lot of people from all sides to take a more critical perspective of the police. And we've had women sharing their experiences where they've reported sexual offences to the police and they've said they've not felt supported or confident that their cases would be taken seriously. So I think it is about being willing to have these awkward conversations and in the past, we've had a lot of women speak out and share their own experiences of sexual violence and share the day-to-day steps and calculations that they take to keep themselves safe. And I think we do have a long way to go, but I think it is important to keep having these discussions and not to be afraid to criticise institutions, be that the police or the government or, or the legal system. Robert and Jasmine, thank you very much as always for joining us. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. And if you enjoyed listening to this, then please do subscribe. You can find us through all the usual channels where you can also leave us a nice positive rating or a happy review. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dada and Josh de The sound engineer is Breen Turner and the editor, Liam Nolan. Until next time, thanks for listening.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.